This is Asia Insight, Asia Policy in a Pod. From the National Bureau of Asian Research in Washington, D.C., this is Dan Om. Asia Insight is a podcast series from NBR, where we interview top Asia experts to discuss key issues affecting the Indo-Pacific region, particularly with a view to informing U.S. policy and businesses. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing two such experts, Jonathan Elkind of Columbia University and Clara Gillespie of NBR for a timely discussion on U.S. energy policy towards the Asia-Pacific. Our discussion draws from their range of experiences in studying, informing, and shaping U.S. energy policy. Let me briefly introduce them. Their more extensive bios are linked in the show notes to this podcast. Jonathan Elkind is a fellow and senior research scholar at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He comes to the center after a long and distinguished career in public service and in the private sector, engaging on critical energy and environmental policy issues. He served as Assistant Secretary for International Affairs for the Department of Energy, served as Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs at the National Security Council, and provided consulting to corporate and nonprofit clients on commercial energy projects in Europe and Eurasia. Clara Gillespie is Senior Director of Trade, Economic, and Energy Affairs at NBR. She leads NBR's research, publications, and events on a number of energy security and trade-related initiatives. She has authored and edited a series of NBR reports. She's briefed executive and legislative branch officials and senior industry representatives. Her work has been featured in both U.S. and international media outlets, including NPR's Marketplace and CNBC. She can be found on Twitter at Clara, that's spelled C-L-A-I-R-E-U-H. As the Trump administration continues to unveil aspects of its free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, John and Clara discuss the role of U.S. energy policy in pursuing its broader goals in the region. We discuss reactions from key stakeholders, including Japan, South Korea, Russia, and China, and how the energy sector is responding to U.S. policy. The experts also give their opinions on the most promising energy sources in the future and their pick for the best book on energy for Asia generalists. We hope you enjoy this episode of Asia Insight. John, Clara, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thanks very much. Very glad to be here. Well, let's start off uh, with a personal note. So, John, how did you get interested in studying energy policy? Well, it was a series of evolutions, really, Uh, candidly. I was a student in uh, college and then also the first time through graduate school. Uh, looking at what was uh, the Soviet Union back in the day Um, and spent probably the first 15 years of my professional career focusing on that part of the world but you know what was possible in many of the post-Soviet states as they came to be uh, for good or for ill had a lot to do with energy and so I spent more and more time focusing on energy and the environment Uh, in the middle of that period uh, the Chernobyl nuclear accident happened. Natural gas exports from Europe, from Russia, Soviet Union, uh, now Russia, to Europe started. Lots of things that had the promise of economic rebound across many of the Soviet states, post-Soviet states, excuse me. Sooner or later, it came down to energy and environment dimensions, and I realized that that was really where my core interest was. And so, over time. I've continued to watch uh, the post-Soviet world uh, to a certain extent, but really the core of my focus is now on energy and climate, both in the United States and also globally. And you've um, traversed from studying it to actually working on it and helping shape policy and now going back to studying it. 
And so maybe, Claire, over to you, how did you start your interest in energy policy? Yeah, for me, I came to the topic with a strong passion and interest in Asia, and specifically understanding geopolitical dimensions of U.S. presence in the region, and also how we could look to strengthen our cooperation and partnerships. Uh, and energy occupied that interesting space where there was on the one hand, this question about how it's been viewed about as a zero-sum tool or a potential source of tension, but also increasingly this arena where we have very uh, powerful shared common interests and active desire to work and build upon um, our interests together. Well, speaking of working on our interests together, so last year, President Trump announced uh, his approach to Asia, known as the Free and Open Indo-Pacific Strategy. Uh, that December, he also announced in his national security strategy an approach of energy dominance. So it's been seven months since then. Uh, so let's start here. What is the U.S. energy policy towards Asia? And I'd ask John if you'd like to kick us off. Well, so it's good that you mentioned both pieces of, uh, of that uh, duality because there is a degree of positive focus on the Indo-Pacific uh, set of countries. Um, that's something that, from my perspective, um, is all to the good. It's a process, frankly, of um, reframing how the United States thinks about and engages with those countries uh, that started during the Obama administration. Um, so it's not like it's um, brand new wine and new bottles. Uh, but it is good that the Trump administration has taken this forward. The problem, I think, is that whether one is talking about the broader political and security and economic relations with those countries, or whether one is zeroing in right on energy, uh, there are some important, some important elements of tension between other aspects of uh, Trump policy and the energy objectives that have been enunciated. Um, for starters, um, if the free and open Indo-Pacific uh, strategy is meant to signal um, intensification of U.S. engagement with those countries, it sits at uh, odds with the most visible action of withdrawal from engagement, and that is the Trump administration's choice uh, to leave the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, negotiation process um, kind of right before the goal line. Secondly, the Trump administration, uh, to the regret of many, myself included, has spent a lot of time calling into question long-standing alliances uh, and partnerships with countries that we have stood shoulder to shoulder with basically since the Second World War. And that's just as true in the Indo-Pacific space uh, as it is in Europe, where we saw that demonstrated so uh, starkly in the, in the month of July. The third thing is if the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy is meant to be a rules-based order, a values-based order, unfortunately that is uh, in some tension with the demonstrated affinity that President Trump has shown towards dealing with strongmen leaders around the globe, uh, whether one is talking about Mr. Duterte uh, in the Philippines or President Putin to President Xi to others. So there's a little bit of tension there, and I hope that those will be uh, resolved over time. The countries in the Indo-Pacific region, as far as I can tell, like countries elsewhere around the globe, are looking for partnership and engagement, the kind of thing that Clara was just talking about. And the idea of energy dominance 
really sits at odds with that. These countries aren't looking to be dominated. They're looking to go enter into mutually advantageous interactions with the United States where we gain different things, but each of those things being a priority for each of us. So uh, while I think it's great that there is a focus on, for example, the export of US-based nat US, uh, extracted natural gas, um, if mercantilist objectives are the only ones uh, that we pursue, or if a kind of transactional emphasis uh, is one that we, the only one that we pursue, I don't think we actually advance our long-term interests in our partnerships uh, in the Indo-Pacific region. It seems case in point then that you can't divorce just the energy policy from the broader Indo-Pacific strategy. Claire, would you care to weigh in on that? I was going to say, I completely agree with John on all of that. And let me just add a point to maybe underscore how significant this is. Because I would argue if you don't have a U.S. energy strategy towards Asia, you really don't have a U.S. international energy strategy. Uh, for NBR, we've been talking for a number of years now about Asia's emergence as a center of global energy demand. And that era is undeniably here now. Um, a lot of individuals will ask me, well, help me put this in context for the Why Asia. How does it compare to Latin America? How does it compare to Europe, to Africa? Uh, the IEA estimates that between now and 2040, the growth in energy demand of developing Asia, that's China, India, Southeast Asia roughly, will be essentially three times the combined growth of Latin America and Africa. That's a huge growth in demand. And if you're looking at it from the perspective of the United States, and in particular for this administration, where they've really hammered home that exports is a key idea of what they want to see in strategy, Asia is either already your primary market or it's about to become that. Uh, this is true for natural gas, but it's also true for coal and advanced nuclear technology, and undeniably true for clean tech as well. So it seems there's tremendous opportunities for growth in Asia, but as John highlights, We've moved away from the multilateral forum that was the TPP, and it seems the Trump administration is pursuing more bilateral tracks with countries in Asia. So if we zero in on some of the relationships there, let's talk about our friends in East Asia, Japan and South Korea. John, how do they fit into our broader energy policy picture? Well, I think that Japan and, and Republic of Korea have for a long time had an interest in what have been in the last, I would say, 10 years, kind of one of the two pillars uh, of our uh, engagement with Asian partners and with others, and that is a focus on the energy security challenges that those countries face, neither one of them being resource rich when it comes to uh, conventional fuels, for example. They are both countries that have a great deal of technological capability, both in terms of uh, innovation and manufacturing, and for that reason, uh, in the Obama administration, we did a lot of work together with them uh, on what the future uh, low-carbon economy could look like and what were contributions that each of those countries could make uh, and their companies, as we were doing from the United States uh, and from our companies. So, I mean, in, in that regard, the, the energy focus of those countries is understandably first and foremost, to ensure that they have reliable supplies of the energy services that they require. That's perfectly understandable, I think, to, to, to most uh, anybody all, in all of your, uh, your listeners, certainly. Where we go from there, um, in terms of watching the evolutions of the, the global energy economy 
uh, unfold is something that is now being affected to a certain extent. If they have the sense that American partners will not be putting their own shoulders to the wheel to deal with the climate change problem, which exists today as it did a year and a half ago, um, then they will make their own calculations about how much they need to uh, be making changes in their own energy economies as well. Claire, so what are you hearing from the region? Um, what are their primary concerns? How, how have they been reacting to some of the tensions uh, in the U.S. policy towards the region? So in the last year, I have visited about, I'd say, 10 now different countries across the region, representing both Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, more broadly. And there are, as I think John hit on, undeniably a number of questions, both about U.S. strategy, uh, but also U.S. intent and um, reliability in terms of commitment. In terms of partnerships, you know, Japan, Korea, maybe let's add Taiwan and a few others to this list, have been both key markets for U.S. exports, but also have shared powerful common values with the United States in that free and open idea for markets. Um, so to that end, you know, the conversations I hear focus primarily on two questions. It's one, how can we work with the United States on these topics, what is the strategy? And two, how do we make that specific in terms of tactics and ideas? For the previous administration, although the Trans-Pacific Partnership was not an energy strategy, it was one where its focus on markets had powerful implications uh, in terms of what was possible and what was viable. Um, you hear this in Japan, you hear it in Korea, uh, you hear it in others, that they're interested in knowing what that U.S. statement is for reducing some of the barriers to trade, for strengthening those protections. If I might jump back Please, in, John. I mean, you hear a couple of um, recurring questions that are on the minds of many of these Asian partners. Um, one goes to how the um, conventional markets, particularly the, the oil market, um, is likely to change with the announced intention of the United States to um, uh, reinstitute uh, oil sanctions. A second is um, how they should interact with their largest neighbor, China, uh, in terms of how China's own development uh, impacts upon um, their energy interests. And a third question that's uh, very much uh, on the minds of many of our East Asian partners in particular is how to think about changes that are happening in Russia, whether they can and should be engaging in progressively deeper uh, links with Russia in regard to natural gas, first and foremost, but also oil to a lesser extent. And as, as Claire put it, you know, these countries are trying to figure out how to engage constructively with the United States uh, that has been a decades-long partner from Republican to Democratic uh, White Houses and back again. And some of the unpredictable, some would say erratic, behavior that one sees uh, from the current White House creates real question marks um, that I think uh, one has to recognize would be puzzling to just about anybody. Picking up on the theme of Russia, it seems one of the drastic departures from previous administrations is the current U.S. relationship with Russia. We are now in a post-Helsinki world where Putin and President Trump have met. Um, what does that mean for the future of U.S.-Russia relations on energy? John, if you have a few thoughts on that. Well, I wish I knew, um, and, and candidly, I don't. It's a really tough uh, question. You have 
very, very wildly conflicting signals um, that are coming from this administration, from uh, very pointed um, uh, criticisms of uh, supplier relationships for natural gas uh, that are being contemplated by a number of European gas importing companies. Um, that on the one hand, on one day, to um, shrug of the shoulders, no particular interest the next day. Claims uh, from the White House that this president has been tougher on Russia uh, uh, than any of his predecessors, but yet that bizarre um, scene from Helsinki wherein the President of the United States uh, kind of implied that uh, when it came to judgments of the U.S. law enforcement and intelligence community or judgments of uh, the President of another country that, well, maybe the, the Russian President, you know, had it right, who knows. So it has been extremely difficult, I think, um, to uh, sort out uh, where our policy is going with respect to, uh, to Russia and energy. I will say this, um, Russia is a deeply consequential part of the global energy scene. And so whether or not we are happy about uh, the nature of political relations between the United States and Russia, we as Americans have a stake in understanding what Russia is doing and with whom, um, just as they have a stake in understanding in a transparent way what's happening in the United States. We're both in the same global market together. And let me just add to that, um, this is also something that's incredibly consequential to our partners and allies in the Asia-Pacific. Um, if you think about what it means to have energy security, you've had a number of countries from Japan to South Korea talking about the importance of diversification, not only of fuels, but of suppliers. Um, and if you've looked at anxieties or tensions about over-reliance on the Middle East, most typically cited, or on supply routes that go through South China Sea type areas, one of the ways that you can address those tensions is to diversify your suppliers and bring in Russia. That's not necessarily something that directly challenges U.S. interests, either in terms of pushing us out of the market necessarily, or in terms of moving us away from some of the things we want to see in terms of our allies and partners being reassured and having stable access to supplies. And perhaps an example in point would be the discussions long held now between Russia and Japan on a pipeline. What do you see as the prospects um, for that moving forward, John? It's for me a little bit hard to, to um, see a, a pipeline connection from uh, Sakhalin or from elsewhere in the Russian Far East to, to Japan um, uh, making economic sense anytime soon. Remember that it's a head-to-head -head competition between installing all of that pipe or taking deliveries of, of LNG off of an increasingly uh, liquid and global uh, market in the Pacific. So, you know, obviously this is a decision that will be made at the end of the day by potential investors uh, that will be conditioned in part uh, on what opportunities they see and what benefits are forthcoming from the interested governments uh, but it's pretty hard for me to see how the economics work out just uh, based on what is visible today. 
Maybe if I can put in a little bit of a self-promotional plug, that's exactly one of the questions that our energy security report for NBR is going to be looking at this year, um, because it is an issue that is now decades in the making, uh, that different governments as well as different investors through this process have been looking at what's viable. But given both the shifts in markets and ongoing political questions, it's a genuinely open-ended question on how it develops. Well, let's pick up on the theme of the um, the economic implications of your energy policy. And anybody following the news on U.S.-China relations today can't miss the ongoing tariff battle. Is there an energy component to that? How is the U.S.-China tensions on trade affecting U.S. energy policy towards the region? And Claire, if you want to take the first swing at that one. Yeah, and there are a couple different play ways this plays out. So in terms of the exact list, some of them hit on energy directly, whether we're talking about solar PV or energy indirectly, because they involve the tools or materials that make energy infrastructure work. Um, in terms of the near term, we're still at this early stage. Both the United States and China continue to talk about the ways that we want to work together positively on L uh, energy. And LNG has been a highlight in this, talking about the opportunities for US exports to China. But as we start to pull out that timeline a little bit more, uh, see more go into effect with tariffs, and also just some of the knock-on effects, there are a couple ways this might play out in a harmful manner for the United States. Uh, the one is something that Damien Ma of the Paulson His Institute has hit on over a number of years, which is this potential for a message that the United States is not open to Chinese trade and investment, in which case China will begin to look for others. And if we talk about LNG in particular, right now this is a market where there are a lot of others uh, in terms of even just China's near-term backyard, thinking about Australia as a potential supplier or expanding supplier, Indonesia and others. Uh, that could challenge some of our export interests there. Indirectly, some of those things that hit on the tariff list, I'm thinking steel and aluminum, also get at some of the basic materials of energy infrastructure. So at a political level, at a tactical level, you might hear the United States and China continue to talk about the ways that we want to work together. But for a market-based system, they just might not make sense economically anymore. Do they make sense, John? Care to weigh in? I, I broadly agree with that. I mean, the interesting thing is that as there have been progressive rounds of um, tariff, counter-tariff, further escalation, further escalation, the dog that hasn't barked um, has been uh, tariffs imposed from the Chinese side on uh, natural gas from the United States. Um, it's important to keep that in context. The, the natural gas uh, uh, sector in China has been growing by leaps and bounds that are kind of dizzying. Um, in the 2017 uh, consumption levels in China were up 15 percent, roughly twice the uh, the tempo of GDP growth uh, in a year-on-year -year comparison to 2016. Um, that means that 2017 LNG imports were up 46 percent year-on-year, 46 percent, um, uh, which is quite striking. Uh, and, you know, you see massive demand that is being driven uh, by policies instituted at the national level uh, in Beijing. Uh, by the way, uh, in a uh, shameless plug uh, from my side, I want to 
draw your listeners' attention to a really superb um, piece of analysis that was released about a month ago by my colleagues David Sandalo, uh, Akos Loz, and Sheng Yan, uh, but a really good piece looking at dynamics in uh, the Chinese uh, natural gas sector. What is being called into question uh, fundamentally, as Claire pointed out, is basic trust and stability in the relationship. Uh, for many, many years, the United States has criticized certain other countries around the globe that have used energy as a political tool. Russia has been at the, the top of that list, but hasn't been alone there. Um, reasonable people might ask the question whether some element of the energy dominance uh, agenda uh, goes in the same direction or perhaps goes uncomfortably close to that. So one will see where things go. There's a second form of impact on the energy sector that can come from the tariff war that is uh, currently playing out. Um, and that is impacts on the macroeconomy globally. Uh, I certainly hope that we do not end up in this situation, but if you start to see uh, the kinds of broad uh, macroeconomic uh, softening that economists talk about all the time when they talk about the dangers and the hazards that are associated with trade wars, you know, that would certainly suppress uh, energy sector demand as it would suppress demand from other sectors. And there's a third uh, element of this as well. The relationship over trade uh, and investment issues with, between the United States and China um, has been very challenging for a number of years. This is not something that is a, a problem newly discovered uh, by the current administration. Uh, nor is it a, a problem that was neglected by either of the two previous administrations. These are long-standing issues uh, where we have been uh, progressively trying to seek and secure solutions. The problem is if you try to do that at a time when some of your natural allies, say our European partners, have just been on the receiving end of some of the same tariffs um, that are being applied to China, you're kind of uh, disarming yourself of countries that have been our partners that are suffering some of the same treatment in terms of their companies, um, the same treatment that has caused problems for the United States, uh, and you're frankly undercutting the degree to which it is credible that the United States and its economic partners will pr place escalating pressure on China to get some uh, satisfaction and some resolution. If I can build on this, one area that this has been specifically concerning is also how this plays out in Southeast Asia. So in April, uh, ASEAN ministers met, and Prime Minister Lee of Singapore specifically called out the U.S.-China trade tensions as one of the most pressing concerns for the region, uh, and directly linked that with questions about protectionism and how you uh, revisit the question of setting norms and values in open markets. Um, this is both because a lot of the countries in the region have the United States and China as key trading partners, so they see it as both coming and going. You either get hit by the action of the United States or you might get hit by the action of China, and sometimes both. But it's also just a, a statement of how interdependent they are in terms of supply chains. Uh, DBS, uh, based in Singapore, recently did a study saying that of the world's countries that are most vulnerable to disruption, disruptions in supply chains, 
you have about four of those top 10 in Asia. Uh, that's Singapore, Malaysia, Taiwan, and South Korea. And those, importantly, are a list of partners and allies that we have long looked to support and see their prosperity as often a proxy for greater U.S. interests in the region. Taking all this together, it seems U.S. policy towards even just the narrow relationship between U.S. and China isn't limited to U.S. and China, but some of the reverberations there also affect what the U.S. is doing in the EU and maybe indirectly how that affects other states in Asia. So given that, as far as I can see, there is no clear end in sight, how is the energy industry handling this uncertainty? Have you seen them adapt their strategies to the new reality? John, maybe we'll start with you. Well, I think for the, uh, for the most part, the energy industry is uh, most particularly keen not to end up as the meat in the sandwich. They don't want to um, uh, end up in a situation uh, where political winds are buffeting them uh, in a way that is uh, difficult for their shareholder interests. They also, frankly, have um, the, these companies in the industry uh, broadly have an interest um, to be on good and professional terms with the governments uh, in all of the countries where they operate. So for those that are global in scope and present in many different uh, international markets, this is a time of challenge. Um, now, uh, it is also a time of challenge because some of the parameters uh, the indicators of future growth um, are under threat. Many of the companies in, in particular in the conventional energy segments um, are extremely expert at dealing with those kinds of uncertainties. They are, uh, if one talks about the oil and gas companies, for example, first and foremost, they are risk managers on a, on a global scale uh, in global portfolios. This creates somewhat different tensions and exposures for some of the, the new energy economy, some of the more uh, nascent companies that are bringing technologies that are at the forefront uh, into the global market. Um, if there is uncertainty about whether certain markets are open for those companies to go to, uh, that creates difficulty for growth. And in turn, it creates difficulty for um, achieving the energy transition, which uh, we all recognize uh, we need to go through uh, in the coming uh, couple of decades in order to respond adequately to the climate uh, crisis. So it's a, it's a complicated field of play for companies that are in the energy industry. How uh, vulnerable they feel reflects a lot of different factors, which markets in particular they're either currently operating in or wanting to be operating, operating in, and also w where they are in their own development. I would agree with that and add that it also applies to some of the questions and issues that governments and other energy stakeholders are looking at right now as well. This is being viewed as a risk factor but it's often one risk factor among many where they're dealing with profound disruption in the market right now. Some of that's undeniably challenging and negative, some of it quite positive and opening up new opportunities. Uh, we've seen a number of countries across the region in the last few years, whether it's Indonesia, China, Japan, Korea, 
take a very clear look at their own energy strategy and say, given what we're seeing in terms of costs, new breakthroughs in technology, and also public demand, it is time for us to look at a more profound change in line with this energy transition. And so when you think about it that way, for me, the concern is not just an individual price point or what's happening in terms of investment. It's much more broadly about the climate of openness to investment as well as innovation and to what extent the United States is staying engaged on that. It's a, it's a time when it's a good thing not to be in the uh, energy projection business because um, <laughs> our friends who are are dealing with a lot of headaches and imponderables. Um, the uh, Energy Information Administration at the Department of Energy just recently released its new International Energy Outlook, which is an annual publication that they do. Um, and it's a very interesting piece because as they look forward to 2040 um, and start looking at some of the big um, factors outside of the United States that could affect uh, what our energy future looks like in the 2040 timeframe, the nature of China's economic evolution, uh, how much they shift from being uh, a manufacturing uh, so, uh, economy to being a service and domestic consumption oriented economy. What happens similarly in India? Does it continue with the very um, rapid uh, economic development as a whole and energy development within that? These kinds of questions and also what happens in terms of mm -hmm. economic uh, opportunity in sub-Saharan Africa, these are cardinal uh, big-ticket changes that will fundamentally alter what uh, the energy future looks like. So um, I appreciate uh, my former DOE colleagues at the, at the EIA and in other such organizations around the globe, um, and I'm glad I don't have their job right now. <laughs> <laughs> and let me just add on that and pick up on something John said, too, that we've been talking a lot about this in terms of supply and demand, but there's also a very powerful question for investment and this kind of engagement. It's not just that Asia is looking for energy supplies, but actively they're actively involved in the development and execution of new technologies, as well as a key investor in power grid infrastructure, in what is likely to make EVs viable and growing in terms of a global force, and then also renewable energy. Well, and if I could just pick up on that, that's a, I think that's really an excellent point. In all of the complication that one has, the complexity that one has today in the U.S.-China um, relationship writ large and the trade relationship and uh, trade investment relationship within that, it is nonetheless the case that you can't end up solving the climate problem mm. in a timely manner unless both China and the United States are part of the solution. You know, that's another one of the, the reasons that contributes to something that one hears from Asian partners on a pretty regular basis, which is never quite stated like this, but always has the clear undertone of, please don't you know, leave us caught in the middle between um, China on the one hand, United States on the other. One of the areas where this administration has wanted to, and I think very appropriately, very laudably has wanted uh, to focus uh, their attention is on the development of carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration technologies. Well, you know, China is one of the natural places where those uh, technologies can and should be deployed. They, China is also a place where U.S. companies can deploy as pilot uh, installations 
new and very promising uh, innovations which wouldn't otherwise be deployed in the market for piloting uh, elsewhere. So China is a difficult partner. We've got issues that we have to work through with China, but China is also a necessary partner um, uh, in, in, in Asia. It seems then, then in the investment and the focus on developing emerging technologies isn't just an energy issue, but it's a broader diplomatic and geopolitical issue. So what have you seen within the Trump administration's approach um, to investing in the emerging technologies? You mentioned the carbon capture. Are there other elements of them focusing on renewables or other investments in technology that you've seen? Well, this is a really, really important area, and it's one where I think that some credit is due, but there is also um, a pattern which I think has been really unfortunate that I hope that the Trump administration will move away from. On the, this, the side of the ledger where credit is due, a piece of tax treatment was introduced as part of the bipartisan budget agreement earlier this year. It's referred to as the Section 45Q, uh, tax treatment for investments in carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration. Um, this new feature of law provides a really badly needed economic boost uh, to deploy in the marketplace, in the real world, um, emerging technologies that will stop carbon from being polluted up into the atmosphere where it changes the climate, and instead to be captured either to be put deep underground or to be used in other safe forms for chemical development or even fuel development over time. So huge step forward and a very positive one taken by the Trump administration in that regard. The thing that one would hope that the Trump administration will move away from uh, is this pattern which we've now seen uh, repeated uh, from uh, throughout the last uh, year and a half that the Trump administration has been in power, uh, where the Trump budget requests that go to the Congress call for an evisceration of investments in clean energy technologies across the board. Um, thank goodness each time so far uh, the Congress has come back and said, you know, what, are you crazy? You know, why would it make sense to zero out um, ARPA-E, the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Energy, when that is doing some of the most creative, the most promising work that will be the source of American jobs in the future? Why would you do that? That's unilateral disarmament. So I hope that just as the Trump administration has very positively taken this step and provided this leadership uh, on the 45Q um, uh, provision for CCUS, uh, that the Trump administration will realize that there are lots of other areas uh, in the energy space where sustained and predictable uh, budgets for research and development um, are important because they are creating the jobs, the American jobs of tomorrow. Claire, do you want to weigh in on that? Maybe building on that, one of the reasons that we've long talked about the strength of the U.S. energy policy being this focus on market-based principles is this belief that governments in general are really bad at picking winners and losers. And that's not just a, a United States question, but that's true of other countries as well. 
And so the idea being not that we only want to look at the market and say, what is the one technology, what is the one fuel source that we really want to line up behind and promote, but what are the conditions that will allow us to take advantage of these new and emerging ideas that allow us to be responsive to, say, developments in Asia that we might not be able to predict at the moment. And so some of that, more broadly speaking, is, I think, as John well hit on, how do we make sure that we have a conducive environment for making investment in R&D available? How do we really double down and focus on domestic market conditions, whether they be sustaining some of the market principles we've had here in the United States, or further advancing reforms in other parts of the region, such as related to contract sanctity, ease of doing business, things that are not just about one country in a narrow, isolated sense, but about how we take advantage of global supply chains that can bring down costs. So we've gathered some good ideas, both from John and Clara here, on what should be some additional elements that inform U.S. energy policy. Um, Are are there any other parts that we haven't discussed today um, that you wish the administration was considering in formulating its current uh, energy policy towards the Asia-Pacific? I know John talked about energy dominance. Another phrase that I think is really unfortunate is energy independence. Uh, It's something that's not just been highlighted by this administration. It dates back about half a century in U.S. policy as this kind of ambition and goal. Uh, But really, when we get down to it, ultimately what we've often been looking for is this protection or insulation from volatile markets and prices. Um, Simply developing more U.S. supply here doesn't insulate us from global markets. We can't just think about what we need to do in terms of U.S. best practices. We have to be more broadly engaged. John, what else do you wish the Trump administration were Well, look, I mean, I think fundamentally, um, when it comes to the energy economy, uh, it is important that we remember that um, our energy economy has always evolved over time. Um, And it has been a succession of technologies uh, that we have used and different applications for which we have used those technologies. the energy economy of today, trust me, looks a lot different than you know the U.S. energy economy did in 1850 or in 1900, as is only appropriate. So trying to turn back the clock um, uh, on which energy sources we're using or how we're using them makes about as much sense as um, you know recommending that we should go back to horses and buggies. Um, we need to embrace uh, and frankly provide leadership for the low carbon um, energy economy of the future. We have a huge positive stake uh, in doing that. Um, We should never ignore the fact that there will be people who have um, made a living themselves and maybe their parents before them in a certain industry and that parts of our country um, are associated with some of these industries. And I think about, you know, Uh, Pittsburgh and steel, I think about West Virginia and coal, you can look at other such um, regional economic pockets around the country. And when our economy then shifts, um, that creates real risks that everyday people can be the the victims of forces that are way bigger than them. Um, We have to uh, engage seriously on figuring out how you help people not to be roadkill. Um, 
But you also have to do that cognizant of the fact that change in our world is something that we're not going to be able to stop. It is something that we will either be providing leadership on or that we will be more broadly, our economy will be uh, the victim of. And maybe just to build on that, we talk about the shale revolution as one of the uh, success stories of U.S. innovation. And this is both something that was a surprise both to governments and industry, but also a story that was decades in the making in terms of long-term investments in R&D. Well, thank you very much for your time. Before I let you go, let me run through a quick lightning round with two quick questions. So first, John, uh, what is the most promising energy source for the future and why? I guess I would have to say that the most promising energy source uh, arguably isn't a source, but it's it's the storage question. Um, If we can figure out storage, which can be source uh, at certain times of the day or times of the year, and sink um, at other times, uh, we will do ourselves a huge favor in terms of figuring out how to take best advantage of uh, energy, whether it is variable or dispatchable, uh, whenever it is available. Clara? I would say similar to John, I wouldn't point towards an individual fuel, but more of a, a broad concept, and that is efficiency. It's the thing that we often describe as being low-hanging fruit, but it makes a lot more possible in the way that we use existing fuels and sources. Second question. If there was a single book on energy that you would recommend to an an Asia generalist, what would it be? It might be, but this is a little bit of a cheat on my part because I haven't (laughs) yet read it. I've just read lots about it. It might be the new Richard Rhodes book um, uh, on the history of energy. Uh, It is, uh, it sounds fascinating. I've read um, other work that he has done about the development of nuclear power and and the nuclear weapons Mm. complex. So that I think is my, uh, my vote for now. And a second one, that I have read uh, is Varun Sivaram's excellent piece, uh, Taming the Sun, which both lays out the amazing story of innovation in the solar photovoltaic arena, but also frankly serves as a clarion call to us about some of the ways in which we need to stay a step ahead of the game and to continue uh, the business of innovating in our energy economy. Clara. Sounds like John and I have a very similar reading list, so <laughs> maybe I would add to that uh, the work that Megan O'Sullivan has done recently on the geopolitics of energy, and she's written a couple different things here. Always a great read. Well, thank you, Clara, John, for this rich and wide-ranging discussion. Uh, I know I enjoyed it very much. I hope our listeners do as well, so thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you.